0: One miscalculation and the world faces nuclear annihilation. The head of the UN warns we're at the most dangerous time since the Cold War. Nuclear armed nations are calling for disarmament, but do they have the will to eliminate nuclear weapons? I'm Kim Vanell, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests in Vienna, Robert Kelly, a distinguished fellow at the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. He's also a former director at the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency. In Lahore, Rabia Akhtar, director at the Center for Security and Policy Research at the University of Lahore, and author of the book, The Blind Eye, U.S. Non-Proliferation Policy Towards Pakistan from Ford to Clinton. And in Washington, Richard Cupid, a senior fellow and director Uh, at Partnerships and Proliferation Prevention at the Stimson Centre. He's previously worked for the State Department on counterproliferation. A very warm welcome to you all. Uh, I'd like to start with you, Robert Kelly. Antonio Guterres says he's worried that crises with nuclear undertones could escalate. How serious is the threat right now that nuclear weapons could actually be used?
1: I don't see it very large between the uh, designated nuclear weapon states, the permanent five, Uh, I would be very concerned about South Asia and India and Pakistan maybe uh, losing some of their reserve to not use nuclear weapons. The concerns in Ukraine right now are probably real, but I don't see them as, as rising to a very high level right now.
0: Okay. Richard Cupid, This U.S. Secretary of State gave a a big speech about how uh, invested the U.S. is in lowering the threat of nuclear war. But do the main nuclear powers that we've talked about, um, do they actually want nuclear weapons eliminated or do they just want to stop others from having them?
2: Well, thank you for the invitation. I, I certainly believe there's an interest, at least in the part of the Biden administration, uh, which you can see in President Biden's statements uh, for the NPT at reducing the U.S. nuclear, nuclear arsenal. Uh, but I think the question has always been how to do that without actually increasing the risk of nuclear conflicts in the process. Um, I'm not so sure about uh, some of the other um uh, nuclear powers at this point, uh, in, in particularly given the Russian Federation's, as you've noticed, uh, noted in your report, uh, its references to uh, nuclear weapons and its uh, current uh, recent unprovoked threats. Um, and there may be other countries that also have uh, a limited interest in nuclear disarmament at this time. Mm. Um, for me, uh, I w- am with, though. Uh, Under Secretary, uh, well, excuse me, UN Secretary General Guterres is we're a miscalculation away. Uh, I would point and uh, side with uh, Professor Scott Sagan in believing that the more states with nuclear weapons, uh, the greater the risk of accident, theft, sabotage, or miscalculation. So I think there is a, uh, it's not necessarily a a hypocritical position to be in to want to try to reduce your weapons uh, stockpiles uh, while uh, preserving and making sure that you. You increase, actually increase the the risk of use of nuclear weapons in the process of so, things.
0: Okay, Rabbi Akhtar in Lahore, you see the the non proliferation uh, treaty as, as as a sort of gatekeeper with these with these main players. Can you just walk us through that? Thank you so much
3: for having me on the show. Um, I've always maintained this position that international non proliferation regime, you know, can be best categorized as organized hypocrisy. And we all believe that organized hypocrisy is an inherent part of the complex international system where a state's behavior is inconsistent with the norms and principles it rhetorically endorses. And the international system, uh, we all understand, is unpredictable and complex. And the rules and norms of the system, they constantly clash with the state's national interest, making it difficult to remain consistent in its behavior. So one would argue that if these inconsistencies in behavior exist, then new norms should be established. But we have seen that over past several decades, no new norms have been established to deal with these inconsistencies. And I believe that you know, this organized hypocrisy has been a development of popular narratives and there has been selective norms of non-proliferation that have been projected in order to serve purposes. And and we have there are plenty of examples, you know, that uh, lead us to believe that it is in the interest of countries like U.S. and others allies, other allies of the U.S. to pick and choose countries that benefit from the selective proliferation. Can you give us and some it examples? or in the interest of, uh, yeah, so. For example, you know when in 2013 the US was negotiating with Iran in order to stop its nuclear weapons program or not having the ambitions to develop nuclear weapons, it was signing a nuclear cooperation agreement with Vietnam, and it decided that it is going to provide, you know, heavy fuel uh, uh, for, uh, you know, Vietnamese reactors and. Uh, Vietnam at that point in time also had a very dismal human rights record. There was no regime for nuclear security in place, yet this selective case of proliferation was happening while on the other hand, Iran was denied
0: the same. Mm. I want to throw it over to Robert Kelly um, to get your take on that. Is, is this organized hypocrisy by some of those main powers? I'm thinking about that the deal between the US, Australia and the UK to let Australia get nuclear-powered submarines, which China, which China is obviously very concerned about. Um, you know, is, is there some hypocrisy going on?
1: There's major hypocrisy there. And I think giving this over to lawyers and accountants it's shown they're easy to get the wrong end of the stick. Uh, the problem right now is that Australia has six small diesel submarines that they use for coastal defense. And somewhere they, the French offered them replacements for those same machines. What has happened is the U.S. and the U.K. waded in, stayed, stabbed the French in the back, and convinced the Australians that they need eight nuclear submarines that are capable of launching nuclear uh, uh, missiles at the Chinese mainland from the South China Sea. That's the big problem. They're not nuclear missiles they want to launch, but land attack missiles. It, it, Australia has turned its entire program upside down from coastal defense to attacking China. And if you don't think that's going to cause problems, just watch what's mm-hmm. happening with China. Mm-hmm. They they see it as a major threat. Uh, and, and to the earlier comment, I would like to say that Russia has made some very threatening comments Donald Trump made the same comments about his red button a couple of years ago and the hell that he would rain down in North Korea. So a lot of people can make big talk, but let's see if they really mean it.
0: Just before we move on, um mr Kelly from you. you you talk there about you know Russia uh, I guess it's been accused of, of nuclear saber rattling but then uh, at the beginning of this um, of this conference these talks happening uh, President Putin wrote we proceed from the fact that there can be no winners in a nuclear war and it should be it should never be unleashed so is that really nuclear saber rattling or is Russia opening up the door for discussions
1: I think what we're missing here is there are several different um Scenarios we should be looking at. There's the bilateral problem between both, mostly the Americans and the Russians who've dealt with it for decades with arms control. And then there are larger issues of the Perm 5, and there are larger issues yet of the Perm 5, plus the states that have nuclear weapons but are not part of the um, NPT. Uh, where you put North Korea in that you know, is, is difficult to say. So I, I think what we're thinking here is the bilateral issue between Russia and uh, the United States, yeah, there, there is danger there, but that, and it's complicated by NATO, of course, because the other NATO members are nuclear umbrella states. But that, I think, is where we might be concentrating right now.
0: Mm. Richard Cupid uh, in Washington, D.C. How has the war in Ukraine changed the calculation around warfare and around uh, nuclear weapons and around nuclear deterrence?
2: Well, I, I think that's uh, the impact is is still to be determined, but uh, uh, the immediate uh, situation is uh, I think it's hardened some positions in terms of uh, those who are supporting the ban treaty, for example. Um, but at the same time, it has moved some other states that uh, had not been uh, in in prior in prior years supportive of, of um, let's say an extended nuclear umbrella. Uh, main, Mainly Sweden and Finland uh, towards uh, NATO, uh, which I think Russia did not really uh, uh, in anticipate or, or hope would happen as a result of the uh, second invasion of Ukraine. So I, I certainly uh, think it does have some uh, additional impacts. We uh, personally, uh, having uh, worked at the United Nations as well as State Department, uh, I would have it. I think it's going to be very difficult. Uh, for U.S. diplomats to trust uh, their counterparts on the other side, given what's been said, um, and uh, in, in addition, I think uh, uh, I think another thing that's another development is though there may be some more serious discussion of the safety and security of nuclear power plants, uh, which, uh, given the what's happened in Ukraine, but and the Seven Pillars. Uh, it, idea that's been endorsed by the Board of governors uh that came from um, director general Grossi. I think those that that's a that's a discussion that needs to be um, moved to the forefront because uh we're especially as we see uh an increase in interest in nuclear power around the world in, in order to address some of the issues related to climate change
0: mm. Um, I want to come back to you, uh, Rabia Akhtar, uh, to talk a little bit more about this idea of hypocrisy. Because when we talk about the main nuclear powers, the US, UK, Russia, China, France, what about the other suspected nuclear powers, Israel, India, Pakistan? Why is it uh, okay for them, I guess, US allies, to, to have these weapons but not their adversaries, say Iran? I
3: think it's a great question, and it's also, uh, you know, to deal with the gatekeeping and the kind of power they have by dividing the world into haves and have-nots. And even, you know, with Israel, India and Pakistan that are outside the NPT and have nuclear weapons are considered to be illegitimate nuclear weapon states. They are called nuclear armed states or nuclear possessor states, but not nuclear weapon states. Uh, so even with the lexicon, you know, you try to control uh, power and add to what it means to these countries. Um, I believe that, you know, uh, countries like Israel, for example, there's hardly any conference that I have attended on nuclear weapons in which, uh, you know, Israel is invisible. Nobody talks about Israel's nuclear weapons. Nobody talks about, uh, you know, what is stopping the Middle East from achieving a nuclear weapon free zone. Well, all the other countries are on board except for Israel, and the United States is backing it. Uh, and also with this uh, idea that, you know, one country possessing nuclear weapon uh, has a different sense of rationality uh, as compared to the P5 who have nuclear weapons. As if, you know, they will be more rational with their use of nuclear weapons, and these illegitimate countries outside the club will be irrational. Where do you think that stems from?
0: Uh, Where do you think that stems from, this idea that, you know, the P5 would take rational decisions uh, and, you know, other nations would not? Where does that come from?
3: So it has always been, uh, you know, a part of the broader security studies, strategic studies, literature, where, you know, United States, being the first country to acquire it, generated this narrative that, you know, Uh, we are the ones more responsible with nuclear weapons and any other new state, you know, is, is not going to be responsible. So this whole idea about nuclear responsibility somehow has been engineered. And now, you know, over a period of decades, it has come to this blame game sort of a thing with respect to nuclear weapons and responsibility. Uh, that you know i think it needs a new narrative it needs it's needs new uh, generation to take this forward and question as to how are you most responsible when you are the ones who the only country in this world uh, who have used nuclear weapons only country in the world who has had more number of accidents leading uh, if those accidents you know actually uh, detonated you know uh, the world would have seen those you know, weapons detonated. Uh, You have had decades of nuclear learning. And these new nuclear countries have looked at you and your accidents in the history of it and have learned that, you know, what is not to be done and are more, uh, you know, responsible with their nuclear safety and security regime. Mm -hmm. Yet we are the ones, you know, who are pointed fingers at. I, I think all of this needs to be questioned and continuously being questioned that, one
0: rationality,
3: you know, is, is not superior to the others. You sure. know. Being I just want to.
0: I want to pass order. it over to Robert Kelly. Was there something you wanted to add? Add to that.
1: I think first, the first reason that one believes that um, uh, there's some rationality in the weapons possessing states is about 75 years of restraint and not using them. If we look at the inter, uh, the introduction that you gave. Someone said the uh, large countries are down about 3,000 weapons. I think they're more like 30,000 weapons have been removed from the Russian and American stockpiles. And if we look at what countries are growing their stockpiles today, the largest growth is in Pakistan. Pakistan will surpass uh, the United Kingdom and France fairly soon in being uh, about the fourth largest weapon state, no matter what kind of a label you put on them. So if you're worried about who's increasing their stockpiles and who is behaving militaristically, I'd start with Pakistan and India, followed shortly by uh, DPRK.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about uh, North Korea because you can't really have a discussion about nuclear non-proliferation without talking about North Korea. How does um, the the DPRK keeping nuclear weapons on the table, showing them off, launching uh, tests... How does that impact other nations and their ability or inability to reduce their stockpile? Because if you have that, you know, clear threat on display, what does it do for the rest of the non-proliferation disarmament movement? And also, what does it mean for South Korea?
1: I think one well, of the first things you have to look at is whether the North Korean stockpile is real or not. Uh, they have tested a number of weapons. Uh, most of those tests when we can follow through their lineage and see what they were for. I don't think their thermonuclear test was was real in the sense of being a weaponizable device. And there's no sign that those warheads have ever been fitted to a missile and tested to see if they reach a target. So DPRK may be accumulating weapons, but they're not accumulating uh, weapon systems that can deliver a weapon to a target.
0: Okay. Richard Cupid, um, how has the fight against climate change, complicated efforts, toward denuclearization, because obviously energy is becoming more expensive. People are looking back towards nuclear options. So how is that kind of coloring the picture?
2: Well, certainly, I think a number of states uh, have indicated that their real interest in expanding their nuclear power uh, programs or embarking on a nuclear power program uh, in the light of climate change, especially with uh, small modular reactors, other new and advanced reactor systems. Uh, so, I, in terms of denuclearization, that's that's an issue. In terms of getting rid of nuclear weapons or preventing proliferation, uh, it's more of it's more of an issue. Of, of over time, you know, I, I think we've known from the beginning that um, if you learn a few things from nuclear power. Uh, they do have some application uh, to uh, potentially to developing programs Uh, so the the issue has always been uh, how do we uh, promote the peaceful uses uh, including nuclear power of nuclear energy uh, while restraining the any idea of moving towards a weapon system and that's uh, largely through safeguards is what we and comprehensive safeguards agreements which is what the IAEA and the united and uh, international community has relied on in the past. Uh, so I, it does complicate things because it creates more states that um, will be in a position if they so choose to uh, pursue a nuclear weapons program. Uh, they, however, that that's a big if. Mm-hmm. Moving from being able to do it to choosing to do it is, is a very big step. Uh, I think there's a really interesting book recently by uh, Vipram Narang uh, called Seeking the Bomb that talks about hedging strategies. A number of states have um, moved to a point where they might be able to have a program, uh, but they've so far chosen not to. Some others have actually maybe have more of us chosen to do so, but not tested, not moved beyond that. So there's there's a range of strategies related here. But I think the most important one is for states... To be able to enjoy the peaceful uses of nuclear, uh, mm-hmm. nuclear energy and nuclear technologies, but making sure that they don't choose to pursue a nuclear weapons program. Sure.
0: Okay, we're coming uh, That ne- is,
2: I would note, I the just need to, uh- part of our nuclear cooperation agreements <laughs> yeah. is to push that. I the hear peaceful I, uses. I
0: hear what you're saying. We're coming to the end of the program. We've got about 45 seconds left. So it's a very quick question uh, to you, Rabia Akhtar. Is the promise of nuclear non-proliferation essentially? unfair because it keeps the power in the hands of those countries that can exploit them?
3: I think we have much to be grateful for uh, to the NPT, that it has kept the numbers low. But I do believe that this bargain is unfair. And even with this current RefCon, you would see that Russia uh, and the threats that it has made is going to dominate. And it's again going to come back to that circular argument that you can't disarm, P5 cannot disarm because there is not broader peace and international security. If you would just allow me a couple of seconds to, you know, I I raise my hand uh, to make, uh, to make a comment about South Asia being the nuclear flashpoint, and both of my panelists have, you know, referred to it. Uh, 2019 Pulwama Balakot crisis between India and Pakistan. Crisis termination squarely rested with Pakistan, which did not use in nuclear N word in the entire crisis. And the whole literature coming out from the West says that Pakistan will be the one to use nuclear weapon. So I think there is a change of narrative that needs to be brought about. We appreciate non-use coming from the West, but they don't squarely have the ownership of non-use new countries like india pakistan you know have restrained uh, from using nuclear weapons and through several crises there's a, there's much evidence to it okay
0: we will have to leave it there for time thank you uh, very much to all of our guests robert kelly rabia akhtar and richard cupid that's it for the inside story podcast this episode was produced by calvin Ng, Kara Leg, Legg, fungin newen and jimmy Getahun. studio sound was by alvaro galan the program was edited by vishnu sheila Lynn Nguyen, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again on Wednesday.